If you have worked with students who have trouble engaging in therapy sessions, if you have worked with students who you're just not sure why they're not attending and they don't engage with the therapy items that you have, you're going to want to tune into this session. Jesse Ginsberg is going to share some really great tips and strategies for regulation, engagement, and building intrinsic motivation to communicate. So here we go. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. All right, everyone, thanks for joining us on episode four of the Autism Outreach Podcast. My name is Rose Griffin, and I am here to help you learn strategies you can use in your therapy sessions to help students with autism increase their communication skills. Today, we have Jessie Ginsberg with us. She is a speech-language pathologist and CEO of Pediatric Therapy Playhouse a multidisciplinary clinic in Los Angeles. Super jealous, sounds sunny. And thanks for joining us, Jesse. And it's so nice to virtually meet you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. And yes, it has been very sunny. It's December right now and I've been at the beach every day. Oh, okay. Very nice. So it's very (laughs) gloomy and cold. So I'm just, you know, thinking that it's nice to see the sun. I know that you specialize (laughs) in working with students with autism and I definitely found out about you, I think probably on Instagram and just knowing that you also work with kids with autism. Can you tell us how you became passionate about helping students with autism? Was there one moment that stands out or one client that had an impact on you? Yeah, it's funny because I never planned on specializing in autism. That was not my plan. If anything, I was worried about it because I felt like I didn't know enough and I it felt like a lot of pressure. So I actually turned down a job in East Coast at the Floor Time Center, which would have been 100% autism. And I was so scared to do it. So I decided to turn that down so that I could work in a multidisciplinary clinic that where I saw a little bit of a lot. But because my training started before grad school in working with autism, I just really naturally felt like I knew what I, I was I was knew what I was doing with those kids after that much time and working with some awesome supervisors and mentors and doing some trainings. So it's funny because I was a clinical fellow when I first started presenting on autism at the ASHA convention. Oh wow. And it was one of those things where I just didn't realize that I had this strong background until my supervisor kind of put me in the position to realize that. So she said, oh, I know you have this background in floor time. Do you think you could train our whole clinic? And it was just one of those moments where you just don't see it in yourself, but someone else sees it in you. Wow, that's really amazing that you were presenting at ASHA. ASHA is our national speech therapy organization, if you're listening and aren't sure of that. I know that I presented the first time it was actually in Los Angeles, was actually the first time that I went. And I just did a poster presentation to kind of get into the groove of presenting because there are so many people. Sometimes for the presentations, there are rooms that are like, you know, upwards of 500 people and breakout rooms. And so what was that first presentation about at ASHA? That was really cool. Did you do a poster about research that was going on in your school or what did you guys present about? 
So I was with presenting with Jake Greenspan, who if listeners don't know, he's the son of Dr. Stanley Greenspan, who created the floor time approach. So we were presenting on building engagement and motivation in kids on the spectrum, which is basically what we're talking about still today. (laughs) But that was our presentation. I completely blacked out. I mean, I thank God I had practice because I had, I have no idea what I said up there. Right. It was just like blackout, wake up at the end of the presentation. (laughs) Well, that's awesome. That's a cool experience. I miss going to ASHA. Hopefully again soon, we'll be going to that, right? We can meet in person, but very cool. So, I mean, I definitely know that my followers and listeners want to know more about, you know, working with students who are younger. So where do we get started when working on building those foundational skills for young kids on the spectrum? What kind of strategies or advice do you have for anybody who might be listening, who's working with younger students? I think that for SLPs, one of the biggest almost misconceptions is that our job is to meet kids on the spectrum and immediately start working on language because there are these foundational skills that are so important. And without strengthening those foundational skills, our therapy is not going to be as effective. And not only that, we aren't going to have as great of an impact on the child's communication, the child's life, the family's life. It goes so far beyond what we do in our sessions, you know? So what one of my favorite things to train therapists in are the foundational skills, which I consider our regulation, engagement, and motivation. So how do we get kids regulated? How do we get them attentive first and foremost, and then how do we truly get them engaged and intrinsically motivated to be here and communicating with us? Yeah, that's that's a tough one. I always do a lot of training on this idea of, I mean, I call it building therapeutic rapport, but is that something that you, I mean, you may describe it more as like child-led, or I, I can imagine that we might be using different verbiage, but definitely when I'm starting to work with a new student and, and any student of any age, really, I just kind of want to find out what they like to do and what they enjoy and then try to be the giver of, make sure I have those things and are those some suggestions, like how do we build that engagement? I think that's something that's people really struggle with. I know I did a survey with my email subscribers and I said, you know, what's something that you'd like to hear me talk about more or what are you struggling with? And that was the number one thing that was a recurring theme is how do I get, you know, how do we get students to be more engaged in therapy? So like, how do you suggest that we do that in our therapy sessions? Yeah. So I think that the first thing we have to do before we can truly get a child to be engaged, at least engaged in that continuous back and forth interaction is we have to get them regulated. And that's something that very few of us are taught how to do unless we go and we take continuing ed courses or we work in a multidisciplinary clinic where we learn from occupational therapists. That's just something that SLPs generally we aren't trained in. So that's why, you know, I love teaching that, which is a big part of my course is how to get kids regulated. But I think a really easy first step for listeners is considering something that I post about this a lot, but it's probably not something you learn about in school, but it's trying to figure out how to get the child in this optimal state of arousal. So getting the child regulated, how do we do that? And for kids on the spectrum, we so often see that they either have a low level of arousal. So for low level of arousal, I say think Eeyore, you know, kind of slow moving or passive almost. Or we see kids who are the opposite, kids who are high level of arousal. That is Tigger, right. nonstop on the move, uh, can barely keep up with them because they have so much energy. 
So the thing, important thing to consider is that if you have a child who has low arousal in therapy that day or high arousal, neither one of those are going to be an optimal state for them to be in in order to be efficiently learning. So the, our first job is to get them in that optimal state. So something we can do is we think about if a child is a, has a low level of arousal, our job is to provide them with alerting activities that are going to bring up their level of arousal. And all kids have different sensory preferences that we have to take into account. But generally, things that are alerting are things like moving around, unpredictable movement, spinning. I was going to say different types of touch, but it really depends on the child. Um, if they, if light touch might be alerting for a child, but it might actually be calming for another child. But knowing what activities are alerting, what can we do to bring this child up to a more optimal state of arousal? And then the opposite for kids who are high arousal. How can we present calming activities to bring this child down? And what I'm definitely like, I think a lot of us are like is that we catch other people's energy because energy is contagious. So if we have a kid who comes into session and is really high level of arousal, usually our natural tendency is to get really excited and energized and get at the same level as them. Right. But in reality, the best thing we can do in that moment is try to be more of a calming source for that child. So try to bring that child down to a more optimal level of arousal. So when the student is at that optimal level of arousal, you're saying that's where you're going to kind of be able to work on therapeutic tests. Is that what you're saying to kind of embed these different activities into the session? I think that's one thing too. I know some speech therapists have trouble with is you know, we feel so stressed, especially if we're school-based about, you know, we have to take data, we have to get work on all these IEP goals. It really can be science on how to embed all those different things within the structure of the session. So you're saying kind of based on the student's arousal level, you do either high energy tests or maybe they need something to be more calm. And then that's kind of where we're going to get to that area where the student's kind of ready to learn. Is that kind of that area you're discussing? Exactly. So in if you look at different theories of arousal in the occupational therapy field, basically they show that when a child is in their optimal level of arousal, you'll get the highest level of performance. Right. So what is that for us? Usually it's engagement, more language, etc. So our goal, get the child in that optimal level. Right. Before you're really working on things that are higher level tasks or or more demanding. But I think, you know, you bring up a good point, which is I think that's one of the biggest hesitations for therapists in working on these things is, well, how can I take my data? And I have so many goals. How am I going to do this? And that's hard because there's not an easy way to solve that problem. I mean, I teach therapists how to write goals so that they can focus on those foundational skills, which is one component. But I think another component is just that educational piece, which is explaining to teachers and parents or other caregivers and other professionals why that's important. And, you know, that if we don't work on those foundational skills, all we're doing really is making short-term gains, Right. you know, because you could convince any kid 
kid to sit in a chair if you're going to reward them with whatever is their favorite candy and then get them to answer WH questions. But that doesn't mean that that skill is going to be generalized. Right. Yeah. No, it's hard. So, I mean, I did, I had uh, sessions, maybe maybe two years ago, where I worked with an occupational therapist and we were able to run a group together. This was in a public school setting. And it was really, really fun because we were doing more vocational tasks. So it was older students, but we were doing things like, okay, let's start the session by walking to the classroom and getting your clipboard and then writing. And so it's like following all the directions, but they're also getting up and moving. And then we would do a language lesson about a vocational task and then we would practice the task, right? So they're getting up and they're learning and they're doing. And then we would always end with, it was one of my favorite things because in a former life, I thought I wanted to be an aerobics instructor. So we were doing weightlifting with water bottles, but it's some of those things you're kind of talking about where I'm always trying to analyze the session. And I think I'm probably doing those things without maybe using those terms or thinking about it differently. But I I think that's kind of the art form of therapy is trying to embed some of the things you're talking about within our sessions so that we can work on those things, but so they're functional too for the students. Absolutely. Because, you know, why do we need to do an activity seated at a table when we could do it, like you said, walking around campus and doing all those great things? Right. You know, just embedded. Yeah. We we have to be flexible. I think that's the most important thing. Yes. Speech doesn't happen here. Yes. I say what happens in the speech room does not stay in the speech room, right? Because it really shouldn't even be taking place. Yeah. In the speech room. I always say that. Well, those are great tips. And I feel like there's a place for you and your aerobics in therapy. (laughs) I feel like there's a lot you could do with that. Maybe on an Instagram reel or Instagram story in the future. Yeah. That'd be fun. We'll get there. Those are great ideas. So one thing that can be really difficult for clinicians is knowing how to increase that student attention. So kind of understanding like, okay, when a student is ready to be at their optimal way of learning. So once we're now, let's say that we are working on some of these like more IEP type tasks or more direct instruction type tasks, or even if you're doing it in play, what are some ideas for increasing that student attention to task once you have them in that optimal state? I think that that's one of the trickiest things because a lot of our students aren't going to just stay in their optimal state for the session. (laughs) Right. It goes right back to what you were saying, which is embedding, you know, if need be embedding more sensory input in the activity. But I think that if you are doing something that is intrinsically motivating for the child and you're able to provide the child with kind of the just right level of demands Mm -hmm. that you won't have to work hard for their attention because that will come naturally. So, you know, that's a big part of what I teach is how do we build that intrinsic motivation? Right. You know, because we want the child, we don't want the child participating in the activity because he's going to get something. We want him participating in the activity because he wants to. Right. Because he wants to connect with us and because it feels good. Right. So how can we it and it comes back to being flexible like we talked about. So it's hard because we work really hard on our lesson plans and sometimes we need to just throw them out the window because they're not motivating for a child. But right ultimately the only way we're going to make progress with that child is if we do keep them motivated. 
So what are some ways, I know that I've worked in some, until my business ABA speech got too busy, I was always kind of splitting my time between a public school and then an outside placement. So an outside placement, I think in California and maybe some other states, they call them non-public schools. So kind of schools that are for students with more behavioral barriers and things like that. And so a lot of the students are older, they have problem behavior, they are very limited in what they, I always say, love and enjoy. So, you know, one of the things that I always talk about are doing preference assessments, which is just kind of gauging, like, what does the student like? So what do you do? Like, if you have somebody new at your clinic and you're doing an intake, or I don't know what your process is, but how are some of those ways, if if people are listening and they have a student and they're just like, oh my gosh, this student really doesn't like anything and they definitely don't like being in speech therapy, what are some, you know, tips and strategies? Like, how do we get started? I love the idea of intrinsic motivation and, and just being motivated by being with others. And I think that's probably a student that loves to be around others. And that's a really cool thing. I know oftentimes I've described to parents like your son or daughter is very social, even though maybe the student is a nonverbal student. We can still see all that social reciprocity through eye gaze and staying with people. So what are some ideas on like how to get started? How do we find out what a student, you know, wants to do during a session? What do we do if we have a student who has really limited things that they seem like they like, you know, when you first meet them? I use the parents as much as possible. I think that's one of the best things that we can do because they have so much more information about their child. They know what their child likes and doesn't like. So I try to involve parents as much as possible and asking them, you know, it can be as simple as asking what their favorite songs are because some kids love certain songs, but will absolutely be very unhappy once you start singing the first line of a song that they don't want to hear. Right. You know, so I think talking to parents and getting that is really important. And then I always also collaborate with parents to determine the child's sensory preferences, because I think that is something that we can see differently sometimes across settings. But I think, you know, for me, it depends on the child. But if I'm working with a child who really needs to build those foundational skills and needs a higher level of support, I'm trying to go as long as I possibly can in the session without playing with any toys or without bringing any activities in. So it's... um, you know, as a, a million songs, lots of movement right. activities, lots of sensory. So if a therapist, which I hear all the time is like, well, nothing motivates him or he doesn't want to play with anything. I hear that all the time. Yeah. Usually my response is, you know, do you need to play with anything or can you, he, because what you really want is that child to play with you. Right. Right. So it matters more that he wants to play with you than he wants to play with the toys. So if he's not interested in the toys or doesn't appear to be interested, I think usually there's more than likely issues with the regulation going on there. Right. And in that case, you would want to use a lot of sensory anyways. Yeah, that's a good thought because I definitely think as speech therapists and just, you know, I do spend a lot of time on Instagram, we're constantly bombarded, you know, with this is the greatest new thing and you have to have this material and this is the Velcro. And I mean, that's not how I operate. I think if we got together, we'd probably do therapy pretty similar in the fact that I just think that, you know, kind of being with the student and kind of building on some of those skills that you're working on. But I think that's a different kind of concept because I think a lot of us think about what's in our, you know, our toolbox and we're thinking of that in a physical sense, like what types of materials can I use? But really, we're just saying like, really, this is just boils down to like, 
us communicating with somebody else and kind of finding the joy and like working on it that way. So I think that's a good thing to note because sometimes I think we get bogged down with, oh my gosh, we're doing a winter theme and we have to have everything that correlates. And, you know, like I'm not that kind of therapist really, but I think we kind of see that a lot. So it can feel kind of heavy, don't you think, on when we're planning our therapy sessions? Yeah, I think honestly, we do that for ourselves because we feel like we it makes us feel really organized right. or creative. You know, we're doing all winter stuff, <laughs> um, whether the child has an interest in that or not. So right. I do think a lot of the things we do, we do for ourselves. But if we're just a little more flexible, you know, that is a lot harder for us, but it pays off. Yeah, those are great. I love all these ideas. These are really good ideas because I know definitely students with autism and a lot of students are really struggling with that piece of, you know, engaging. And I always go back to the story of, you know, working with my first, uh, I think, three-year-old in an outpatient setting who had autism and me just feeling very sweaty and nervous because I was nervous about the student not feeling engaged in the session and not liking any of the things that I was showing them, right, because I was doing it that way at first. Well, this was really great information. So I always like to end with a question. And, you know, what is the most important piece of advice that you would want to pass along to another professional or parent about working with students with autism? What would something be the highlight or something that you would really want people to take away from what you've said today? I think that this is, it goes along with what I said, but I haven't directly said this today. But I think for me, a really huge turning point and just a way to learn is by listening to the autistic adult community. And it's really cool because on Instagram, you have all of these people who are out there sharing their experiences. And, you know, through those connections I've made with other autistic SLPs, yeah, even I've learned so much. So I think that ultimately, I feel like I preached this a lot in my course that I teach, but it's all about connection with a child, you know, and our goal in what we do is helping that child to build deep, meaningful relationships. So for us to focus on maybe the numbers and more on the connection that we're building with that child and embracing that child for who they are and that helps parents to do the same. Yeah, I love that. That because that's a journey for a lot of people, right? Absolutely. That's really profound. I love that. Thanks for joining us today. Where can people find you if they want to find out more about you? I'm on Instagram. I would say daily, jessieginsberg.slp. And then I also have a free Facebook group called Young Autism SLPs. If you're an SLP working with young kids on the spectrum, we do a lot of trainings and have a lot of great resources in there as well. And then I've got my website, which is asdfromtheinsideout.com. Awesome. Make sure to find Jesse. Make sure to check the show notes for all the resources we discussed today. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you haven't done so already, make sure to hit subscribe and write a review. Remember to keep things fun and functional and see you next time. Thanks, Jesse. Bye. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.